Good morning. Good afternoon. Thank you all for joining us for our weekly ship show. It's a series that keeps you informed about the changing market conditions, the emerging trends, and the best practices in this time of historic supply chain disruptions. So my co-host, who's generally with me, Anthony D'Ambrosio, he's got over 30 years of experience in the industry. I'm Jason Brand. I've literally been born and raised in it. Inside joke, but you'll get to learn what that means over the course of the weeks. So if you move or if you store freight anywhere in the world, this podcast is for you. And today you're definitely gonna wanna stick around because we're diving deep into the ocean shipping alliances and what the future may hold for you, the shipper. So we've got a new episode every single week. Um, it's everything our team's watching or what our team is worried about. So stay tuned, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on anything. We are Supply Chain Solutions. We're headquartered in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we've been helping our customers ship, store, and optimize their supply chains for over 20 years. We manage freight in and out of over 180 countries, and we've got offices throughout North, Central, South America, and Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us today. Get ready. It's a lot of information. I hope you leave this with a lot more knowledge about the Ocean Shipping Alliances as well, and also this recent split, the 2M. So, we know a little bit about our regular users. We we interact with a lot of you on a weekly basis. Um, we see you joining and a lot of you have reached out to us as well. And we also know that a lot of you do ship a container or two, to say the very least. And you know the reason why it's really obvious that there's a huge community of ocean shippers out there is just the benefits of shipping via ocean. It's cheap, it's easy, it's reliable, and it's also very accessible to a lot of countries and a lot of companies. It's just a ridiculously cost-effective way to move tens of thousands of pounds of goods from one side of the world to the other. And this mode of transit, it's just fantastic. It's allowed our economy and economies all over the world to grow at a relatively steady pace. So when we dial back and we just think about what's happened over the past few years, this cheap, easy, reliable, and accessible means of conducting business, it became expensive, it became difficult, it became unreliable, and just downright not accessible to specific countries and also specific companies. You had to be near a port because now it wasn't only the ocean shipping portion that was, you know, all of those things. Now you had to deal with a domestic transportation market and a rail market that was full of log jams. It just was crazy. Now, this failure during the pandemic, and this is just specific to that ocean shipping I was talking about, and it was a failure in the staple of the business community over the last 20 years, it really created this gasoline for a lot of change to occur. And the split up of the 2M Alliance is this really funny strategic collateral damage from what occurred. Now, I don't want to dial the clock all the way back to the birthplace of ocean shipping in the 1950s, but let's focus on a time period that's a little bit more recent, and let's talk about the beginnings of the ocean shipping alliances. So if you go a little bit forward beyond 1950, when the idea of containerized shipping really began, and you look back to the 1980s, this is kind of the time period where it was almost in the cooker, if that makes sense. So ocean shipping alliances weren't out yet. They had not been formed, but the groundwork was being laid during this time period. So these huge ocean vessels that are really the poster child of 
container shipping today. Obviously, we've all during the pandemic seen the images off them of them off of the coast of California, but they were not in existence yet. They weren't on order. They weren't even designed yet. And the port systems and operations were also in their infancy as well. Now, ultimately, the ocean carriers at the time were much smaller companies and had their ability to effectively get through these growth barriers really hindered by inconsistent demand over the course of a year or a specific financial period, and based on what services they could offer and what areas they could offer. Kind of you look at those in combination. So they weren't able to effectively scale their operations and get through some of these growth hurdles. Now, in the 1980s, because of this, shipping lines started to form these kind of loose handshake agreements that were just saying, hey, you know, you're a shipping line that's got capacity in the same lane as me. I, you know, the way my operations work, I've got a blank spot in this period. If you could fill that, maybe we could, you know, I could hand you some of my customers. You could hand me some of your customers. We could figure out a way to make this work. So it wasn't really an alliance, that, alliance at that point. It wasn't official. It was more unofficial. This was happening in the 1980s. When you hit the 1990s, some of these informal agreements started to become formalized. So before we dive into the specific alliances themselves, because, you know, we've been dealing with them for a long time now. If you are, you know, obviously, if you've been shipping in the last 20 years, you've dealt with 100% alliances, likely. There's a 10% chance that you haven't, but that's if you're shipping really, really, really unique, uniquely. But before we dive into those, I think it's important to discuss why these companies formed these official alliances in more depth. And to put it plain and simply, the benefit of shipping alliances to the companies is increased profitability, competitiveness as well. And this in turn enables them to provide more efficient and more effective from a cost standpoint services to their customers. So there's obviously way more depth you can go into this. And obviously if you look at a specific alliance, you can break down in detail what the benefits were. But if you were going to break it down to four main categories of why these alliances existed and why they continue to exist today, um, it, it, the, and remember, there's more than this, but the first one would be cost savings. So when these companies pull their resources and capacity, they can reduce their operating costs, and they also generally improve the utilization of their assets. So both of these can really be viewed as operational efficiencies. Now, a second benefit associated with being in alliance is network coverage. Now, when you're thinking back to what I mentioned in the 1980s, this was a really critical need. And actually, it was one of the main things that propagated these alliances. It was the main thing that said, look, I need to be in alliance. I, I just shipping companies that could offer a more comprehensive global network of services to their customers. They were just able to get bigger at a more consistent rate. They were also able to get contracts that gave them more consistent volume obviously the two feed into each other. And this is why these companies really started partnering up and leveraging each strength of each carrier. It also allowed them to access accounts that a single carrier wouldn't have been able to handle, period. Now, all of these piggyback on each other a little bit, but they do have their own differences that need to be understood. So the third thing to consider is capacity management. Now, this is really where the agreements of the 1980s and the alliances of the 1990s, they have kind of a defining line. So versus those 1980s agreements, these alliances can strategically engage, engage their capacity as more of a singular unit. And this allows for more flexibility, but 
when you think about the impact they can have on the market, it's much greater. From a customer experience standpoint, this also ensures they have the right resources in the right places at the right time, and they can meet just how the market changes more accurately and obviously more flexibly. Now, fourth and finally, it's the improved competitiveness. And this is an obvious benefit if you look through all of this. But you know what you really need to think here is by being able to offer just more comprehensive services and doing so all in-house, these, allow, these alliances just allow individual shipping lines to lower essentially the buy rate of services they didn't offer in the past. So now they're able to compete in areas because they have this lower internal buy rate, and now they're able to compete so competitively. So it's, it is kind of an important structure. Obviously, in the 80s, when these kind of behind closed doors, just general agreements were being made, and some companies were able to get more competitive, this elevated the competition across the board and other companies in turn had to jump on the bandwagon and in the 90s we saw those elevate become more formalized and also become more intense and extensive now that's really the main four reasons if you think about it that um, these companies form the alliances and if we go back into the 90s the first ever official alliance was actually called the km transportation system um it was a partnership between k-line MOL and NYK. Hang on one second. Let me get a little sip of water. Now, something to know, this was formed in 1992. Following that alliance, remember that was the KM transportation system. We had the Hamburg Sud uh, Mayersk line. They formed an alliance in 1995. And then following that, Evergreen, Hatsu, and Italia teamed up. Um, they formed their own alliance in 1996. Now, Looking at this, thinking about this, understanding our current business community, also understanding the challenges we've all had over the past couple of years in ocean shipping, I had a lot of questions. And, you know, my first thought was, okay, these alliances are forming, right? How is the business community reacting to this? And then also my second question was, what about the legal challenges? Because you don't like to see their, the competition being, you know, dried up in an area and being controlled. Well, one of the most challenging things we've done, Anthony and I both, on this show over the course of the weeks is when we dive into some legal changes that affect our shippers. It is painful to get very specific ideas. It's it's like political spin in 35 pages, and it is just rough. But I have to tell you, I was able to find a little bit. If you can learn a little bit more, if you're interested in these topics, please dig a little deeper, send them over to me. I am, I've been extremely curious about this and I'm really excited to see how this market changes over the course of the future. But the KM transportation system actually made it through relatively easily. Like I found there was some concerns from government bodies, but there wasn't a lot of pen to paper action to stop it from occurring. And um, really it came into existence and then people started to get nervous and people started to get worried about the anti-competitive nature. And that is kind of funny because, you know, obviously the rest of the shipping community is like, well, they're going to form an alliance. They're going to get these benefits. We're going to jump on board too. Well, that's exactly what happened. So our next alliance was the Hamburg Sug Mayersk. And that happened, if you remember, in 1995. And this, all of that pent up concern came out for them. Um, there was a lot of things that actually occurred. So the European Commission and the US Federal Maritime Commission both raised concerns legally to the market power that the alliance would create. And 
Also, obviously, the potential of the alliance to just restrict competition and raise prices for shipping across the board. So what happened? They addressed these concerns. They imposed certain restrictions and made certain requirements that they had to get rid of certain act, certain assets and get rid of certain market control or access. A little bit of a tongue twister there just to allow the open competition for the rest of the shipping community. Well, as you can see, there was another alliance that was formed literally the next year on the tail end of this. So before you know it, everyone's in an alliance. Um, and when I mean everyone, obviously we're talking in generalizations, but a lot of the biggest players at the time were in alliances. And that continued. And I really need to shift forward because we could talk about this for two hours. The, the, the growing and the shuffling of these alliances has continued up until today. And, um, you know, there's what, what's really happened is they've gotten truly massive. And some of the concerns back in the 90s have really been, been coming true over the course of time. I mean, just if you look at demerge and detention alone and the practice of it, and if you follow, there's a few reports that have been coming out. And because obviously the FMC is getting very concerned about this, which they should be. Um, it, you know, you follow how these charges are actually given to the shipper. and and it, it's just, it's a, it's a total mess. So one thing I want to mention, and I'm not going to dive into deep, but there was a pretty big shift in the type of alliances when you go back to the P3 alliance. That was the first alliance that it was more universally seen as, okay, this is getting out of control. Unfortunately, the timing of the P3 alliance, roughly 2013, 2014, um, there was, it, it was up to China and um, China looked, it, pass in 2014 and obviously some of our global trade being able to be at the same table and talk through some of this stuff has diminished um over that period of time which is unfortunate because it's been a really really tough period for manufacturers for retailers um when it comes to ocean shipping and we need to kind of be able to have some you know one outlook on this but not to get in those details too much let's kind of move forward a little bit so the 2M alliance, splitting up. What does it mean? Why does it matter to you? Where did this come from? Why, why would an alliance split up in this, in this period where these alliances have all this power? Well, first, the good news. The 2M alliance is composed of the two largest shipping companies in the entire world. So the simple idea of those two shipping companies working together and already being individually the two largest shipping companies in the world is just anti-competitive anti in nature because of its existence. On the flip side of that, they're operating in an alliance. Over the course of these past 30 years, alliances have really had a lot of regulatory pressure on them. Now, granted, as I mentioned with P3 Alliance, some of our regulatory enforcement and just universal being able to kind of control that market has been diminished because as a globe and between some of the largest shipping partners in the world, we're not having that same communication and productive outcomes, which is unfortunate. But we do have to remember an alliance is a negative situation for a lot of these companies when it comes to regulation. So positive of shipping in the alliances, negative is obviously Right now, there's three major players in the game. Uh, major, you've got about 10% of the market not in an alliance, the rest in an alliance. And that 10% is on niche lanes, primarily. And also, if you're not in an alliance, your terminal space, your major terminals is likely non-existent. So you have to, it's, it's a much more complicated process. Now, going back to this, thinking about Anthony and I, if you've been with us over the course of the pandemic, 
you have seen us talk about so many different topics. We've brought up MSC, we've brought up mayors in multiple, multiple different segments, talking about some of the micro strategies we've been watching over the course of time. Did Anthony and I think that this alliance would split up? Absolutely not. We, we honestly did not. But looking back in the rearview mirror, hindsight's 2020, you can see all of the pieces coming together and the reasoning why that split is actually happening right now. So back to the obvious fact, we all know the shipping market has been a nightmare over the course of the pandemic, and we're probably staring down the final chapter in this roller coaster ride. But if you go back to when shipping rates, we can go back to fall of 2021, you can even go back to January of last year, shipping rates five to seven times what they are right now. Ocean liners, they didn't have the capacity to move all of the freight that they could move. They had to turn down business, and they were also making such high margins, it was painful for a lot of them to turn down business, but they just could not move it. They did not have the capacity, and they were taking their ship and putting it right into a log jam, and then it was out of commission because it had to sit there and wait until it was unloaded. It was a tough situation to be in. A lot of these ocean carriers started buying new ships commissioning them to be built. The problem is that these ships aren't built overnight. They're not built within six months. So they can take years to build. And if you think about it, just like supply and demand, if everyone's buying ships, the time to build a ship goes down, or excuse me, goes up <laughs> because it takes a lot to build a ship and you're not going to be able to just create more facilities overnight to build these ships. So one particular carrier decided to buy more ships than anyone else. And that was MSC. So during the pandemic, MSC, they must have realized that, you know, their heavily inflated profits could pump up their market share. And that is exactly what they did. And, and the amount of ships they purchased is, it's really hard to fathom. Numbers do not give it the emphasis it needs to have. Remember, this is debatable, deba debatably, excuse me, the number one largest shipping line in the world. You've got Maersk and MSC on top. They ordered the equivalent of 43% of their current fleet. They ordered 43% of their current fleet. It's massive. That's massive. So most of that is not active. A lot of it is coming online throughout the course of this year and obviously the following years. But think about this. They're making heavily inflated profits. They're in alliance with Maersk since 2015. Roughly during that time period, the companies were around the same size. Maersk was generally the larger one. And now during the pandemic, they're making profits they haven't seen ever. We're talking about 10 years worth of profits made in one year, just ridiculous profits. They take all of that money, they reinvest it into 43% of new of their current capacity, now as new capacity. What's going on? Well, looking backwards makes us all, I think, feel a little bit stupid. The writing was right on the wall. They're trying to make their own, essentially, their break out of the alliance. And that's exactly what they're going to be doing. Now, how is this going to affect? the shippers. It's really fascinating when you think about this, and we're going to have to watch some of this play out, and especially we're going to have to see if regulation follows this. But the being in an ocean shipping alliance has actually been a negative for a lot of regulatory reasons, but there hasn't been any single shipper that's ever been able to really compete effectively with the alliances across the board. 
Now with this added 43% capacity that MS, MSC is going to see or going to have, they, in theory, particularly in spe specific lanes they've been working on, will be able to compete with these alliances, but they won't have some of those regulatory restrictions. So this is actually, in a weird way, going to probably push a lot more shippers over to MSC because they just will not have some of the same regulatory overhead. And what's going to be challenging for the other carriers is those profits, if they weren't invested properly, they're not going to see profits like they just saw during the pandemic for a very long time. So being able to catch up to MSC at this point is going to be very fascinating. Will MSC be able to end their year in the green? That's a total another challenge, but it's something we've got to keep our eye on. So I know this is a lot of information. And I know when we dive into the 2M alliance, there is really a lot of unknown factors here still that need to play out. But something you need to consider is this split may be the beginning of many splits if it's successful for MSC. And if that happens, it could introduce more competition. But at the same time, we have such a major player now, a singular major player. It also could do the opposite. I know it's a little bit on the fence, but it is something very important you need to watch. Anyway, thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We have a lot of important topics we've got to cover each and every week. And, oh, man, the next few weeks, you've got to talk to our marketing director because we are going to be busy. We are going to be going through all of our market conditions. We have a consolidation program we're going to be reviewing with you. We have some of our in-house experts talking about some specific topics to kind of give you your 101 supply chain education. So make sure you tune in. Make sure you subscribe. Um, not all of our shows happen on Thursday and not all of our shows happen on LinkedIn Live. You can also find us on our podcast as well. I think we are actually running light on time today. So Vanessa, do we have any questions? We are good for today. Thank you guys so much. I hope you learned a lot. There is a lot to be learned here as well. And remember, if you dive a little deeper into some of those legal challenges and you find something interesting, please send them my way. Thanks all.